light to drive out fear, even in the shadow of death. When we believe in the light, we become children of the light. It shines in us, through us. If we walk in the light, if we let it shine before others, we become a city on a hill, the light of the world. When we let his word light our path, others will follow. We become a beacon of hope to a world in darkness. Our lives reflect the glory of his resurrection. He makes us a light for the nations, so his salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Let there be light. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For at one time you were darkness. I was darkness. But now you are in the light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. What great truth Paul's talking about there in Ephesians chapter 5. It's the same thing that the Apostle Peter had in mind a couple of weeks ago when we were together. We talked about how Peter said that we are a chosen race. We have been eternally elected, personally selected by none other than God himself to become a new humanity on earth so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen? This is what the church is. We are this light in the world. We're supposed to show everybody else what it looks like to know the living God by repentance and faith. We're supposed to show the world what, what it looks like to live the best version of humanity through love and obedience to Jesus Christ. We're supposed to show the world how good and gracious God longs to be to them through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are the church, and we are His new humanity designed by God to be a light to this world. That's what we've been talking about. Uh, we began 2017 by this focus on the gospel, the good news that brings salvation to our souls. But the gospel doesn't just save us. The gospel actually shapes us individually and collectively into this new life, this new humanity, this new body, this third kind, as we talked about it last week, this third race, so that we can show forth the glories of him. Now, the way we do that is, quite frankly, we live differently than the world. We, we can't be a light in the world if we live just like the world. And so there are some remarkable differences that should be true uh, of those of us who claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And those differences are what we're talking about. Being a united, generous, truthful, serving, and joyful people in a world that is divided and stingy, confused, selfish, and suffering. And if we get it right, 
if we get it right, we become a big, bright light in this community that helps to attract people to this person called Jesus. The gospel saves us. The gospel shapes us. And ultimately in shaping us, it helps us to share that gospel with others. So this is the track we're on. This is where we're going. We are an evangelical church. That means we believe in the saving power of the gospel of God's grace. Amen? Everyone needs to hear it. Everyone needs to hear it. They need to see it to embrace it. And that's why we were selected. That's why we are here as the body of Christ in southern Maryland. So we're looking at these various aspects. Last week when we were together, I felt as though what I had to share from the truth of the Scripture was some of the most profound truth I think I've ever shared from the Scriptures. And it is simply this. God looks to individually redeem us. And this is called the gospel, the power of the gospel. But to the world, individual salvation means very little to them. They don't really see as much as we might think they see. But it is the ability, the ability of the gospel not only to reconcile us to God, but to actually reconcile differing peoples together who worship and love and celebrate God together. That's profound. We live in a multicultural age, and they don't know how to do it. Everywhere you turn, it's divided and breaking up and splintering and fragmenting. But in Jesus Christ, we have unity in diversity. And we can show the world how it is done. And so my prayer is that God would continue to make Grace Church a reflection of the complexion of our community as we live out the gospel individually and corporately, witnessing the power of God. Amen? Are you tracking with me? This is how we become a light. This is how we become different. This is how we become bright in a day and age where people just need a beacon of hope. Today, we're going to look into the next uh, topic uh, on hand. And today, we're going to talk about being a generous church. A generous church in a very stingy, stingy world. Get ready. I'm already, I've already lost my voice. I've gone over this so many times, I am just ripping and raring. So be careful. Here we go. I, I really feel like I could use a, a word of prayer right now, so I'd invite you to join me and uh, ask the Lord to prepare your heart for what we're about to share. Well, Father, here we are, and we believe that we are a unique humanity picked out of this world to show forth the glories of the one who has taken us out of darkness and put us into the marvelous light of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And Father, today we're going to be looking at this topic of being generous. And I think most of us have a concept of what that means. But I think the word of God says something so much different than most of us think. So help our hearts to be wrapped around your word today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Some years ago, uh, there was a man by the name of Stephen Covey. Uh, I wrote a very famous book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. How many of you are familiar with Mr. Covey? Excellent book, excellent book. Uh, in the cover, or within the pages of that book, 
he has some very insightful words that I think help to capture the age in which we live. Uh, he said this. He said, most people are deeply scripted in what I would call a scarcity mentality. They see life as having only so much, as though there were only one pie out there. And if someone were to get a big piece of the pie, it would ultimately mean less for everyone else. And so what Cubby is saying is he believes that there is this innate, if you will, deeply scripted fear that most people operate out of that leads them to being somewhat selfish or greedy, i.e. there's a desire to have and to hold on to more and more because if I don't get my share, somebody else is going to have it. So I want to get what I can get. He calls it a scarcity mindset. It, it is the idea of selfishness or being greedy. But that's not all. He continues with these following words. The scarcity mentality is the zero-sum paradigm of life. People with a scarcity mentality have a very difficult time sharing. Whether it be recognition or credit, power or profit, even with the very people who help them to produce it. They also have a very hard time being genuinely happy for the success of other people. That last phrase, being genuinely happy for the success of other people, have a really, really hard time with that. What he's talking about here is envy. Envy. We're envious of people who are successful or more successful than we are. So to kind of summarize what he's saying, he has this idea that we are naturally deeply scripted with a fear that beats in our chests and encompasses our culture because he says most people have it. It is a fear, a mindset of scarcity, that there is only so much to go around, so I better get as much as I can, greed, and if I can't seem to get all that I want, and others somehow have more, that seems to be unfair or unjust, so I become envious, even angry. Greed and envy. Greed and envy. I don't know two words that really describe the American landscape any better than those two words. Think about it with me, just for a second. There is today, uh, within, uh, you know, people that want to call them the one percenters or whatever, there is today within corporate America an unprecedented amount of greed. Let's just be honest about this. There is unprecedented greed going on in our culture today. Uh, two weeks ago, Oxfam came out with this statement. And you've got to hear it to just kind of grasp it. Eight men, eight men control as much wealth as 50% of the world's poorest. Let me say that one more time. And they actually named them. Your Gates, your Zuckerbergs, your Bloomberg, your Bezos, your Buffets, and three other men, international men, share as much wealth as half of the planet. There has never been a day with such unprecedented greed as there is today. Let's just be honest and call it what it really is. This is nothing less than the virtue of selfishness or greed is good capitalism. That's how our country works, okay? I'm not saying that's good or wrong or bad or anything. I'm just saying it is. So there is in our country today unprecedented greed, but on the other side, there's this populist envy and anger a growing unrest in the masses that feel cheated and demand their slice of the American pie. 
and they want it you know, through national health care or a $15 minimum wage or free college tuition or more government intervention and programs. Welcome to America. The land of the free, the home of the brave, and the land of envy and the land of greed. This is the reality of our, our America. Now, this thing that Covey calls a scarcity mindset, which is simply the fear that we won't have enough or feel it is unjust if somebody else has more, can actually be summed up with a wonderful biblical word. And the Bible uses a word called coveting. It's the same thing, to covet. So actually, Covey could have written his book and called it coveting. Covey's coveting. But no, he chose uh, scarcity of mind or whatever. That's, that's what I got, a scarcity of mind. Um, but so he wrote this book. But coveting is number 10 of the big 10 no-nos. It really is. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17 said this, And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is in your house. So this idea of coveting is not a new thing. This issue of greed and envy is not a new thing. It goes way back, way back. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself claimed to have struggled with this. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul said this, If, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. To covet is simply an inordinate desire for wealth or possessions. It is materialism or greed. Greed and envy. Greed and envy. Whether you call it covetousness, or you call it scarcity mentality, it is the taproot of our very fallen nature that expresses itself in greed and hoarding, even in envy and in uh, anger. And it is so prevalent in our culture because it comes out of our nature. And this underscores my challenge today. My challenge is to convince you that God has selected us, that God has elected us to be a uniquely new humanity who are able to show forth a generosity of life that makes the outside world say, wow. But you and I have a fallen nature. And we live in a fallen world which has as its dream the American dream, which in many ways is an antithetical concept to the Scriptures. So I feel like I'm speaking this morning with both hands tied behind my back, one leg, and a muzzle. I, I just feel like there's no way I can even begin to puncture the reality of this because most of us don't realize how deeply scripted we are in this. Most of us don't appreciate just how much our culture has truly influenced us. So my only hope is ultimately to bathe us with Scripture and ask God to do what I can't do, and that is to bring sense to something that's nonsense to many of us. Let me explain. This morning, let's just pretend somebody were to walk up to you, two individuals today were to walk up to you, 
Uh, one uh, was an older widowed woman. Uh, her husband has been dead for, oh, six or seven or eight years. And she walks up to you, and she wants some biblical counsel on, on money. And she says to you, she says, um, I'm really down to nothing at home. My, my cupboards are pretty bare. I'm, I'm barely keeping going. I'm down to just $2 in my wallet, but I'm convinced God wants me to put it in the offering plate. What do you think? You know, our initial reaction would be, oh, my goodness. You know, uh, you know don't be foolish. You know, don't do that. Because um, God obviously would want you to use your sense and to keep that money for yourself to meet your needs. That's wise. And so you shouldn't necessarily put it in the plate. God knows your heart. He'll, he'll credit to you anyway, but keep your money. After all, God doesn't rain manna from heaven anymore, does he? So we would tell her straight up, oh, that's ridiculous, dear. Keep your money, feed yourself. Let's say a very well-to-do, middle-aged white man were to walk up to you, and he were to ask you for some counsel on, on some of his, um, his financial dealings. And he says to you, you know, uh, the stock market just broke 20000 And I've got to be honest, you know, my, my dividends are yielding impressive profits. And so what I'm thinking I would like to do is I want to put it all into, into a... Um, a guaranteed annuity. And if I put it all in this guaranteed annuity, what will happen is it will give me a, a steady and secure income for the rest of my life, which means I can retire early and, and I can travel and I can play all the golf that I want. What do you think? And we're like, dude, I wish I was in your shoes. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Obviously God has blessed you. Obviously you have been a wise money manager. Um, um, Enjoy. Enjoy. You're obviously a very wise man. Now, that's how we would respond in those circumstances, wouldn't it? It really is. That's how we would perceive things. And we would think, oh my gosh, darling, don't throw your money in there. Church doesn't need your money. And the other guy, live it up, man. You've obviously deserved it. However, if we were actually to take them to the Bible, if we were actually to take them to the Scriptures, it's amazing. We actually have two stories in the Bible that tell us exactly what Jesus would do. So if you really want biblical counsel when it comes to how to use your funds, let's go to the Bible. Okay, here we go. Let's begin with this elderly uh, woman, this uh, dear widow. Uh, we don't have to wonder what Jesus would think about this because he actually tells us. So in, in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, we have this story about an elderly widow who is down to her last two copper coins. And it says this, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And then he said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. What I want you to notice from this story is that Jesus didn't stop her. He didn't say, God doesn't need your money. He didn't say, oh dear, what are you going to do about tomorrow and food? What he did was he commended her. 
Jesus didn't think what she was doing was foolish. Rather, he held her up as a wise example of faith and sacrificial generosity to his disciples to follow. Just think, if, if this woman were to receive the counsel that we would give her, and we would all do it, wouldn't we? We would all say, oh dear, keep your money. Keep your money because God doesn't need it. If this woman were to listen to the counsel that we would give her, just think, just think, the very thing Jesus commended her for and canonized her in the scriptures for generations of Jesus' followers to have as an example of sacrificial generosity would never have happened for her. We wouldn't be talking about her today if she listened to our counsel. What I want you to get is this. Biblical mentality concerning generosity is radically different than we think. Radically different than we think. In fact, I dare say biblical generosity is rarely rash, but it's always irrational. You can write that down. Put Bill Walker's name under it. Biblical generosity is rarely rash, but it's always irrational from the world's perspective. It doesn't make any sense. You shouldn't do that. But Jesus commends her. He commends her. So we're going to talk a little bit about why he commends her, why she did it. But before we do, we need to talk a little bit about our successful, hardworking, middle-aged man. Here we go. Because there's actually a story in Luke concerning such an individual. So if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, Pastor Bill, you know, I had this great windfall of money and thinking about retiring early and I'm thinking about, you know, just, you know, playing golf and traveling, what would be your take on this? Well, I should sit down with Luke chapter 12 and open it up. And I should say, well, let's see what Jesus thinks. Here we go. <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, this is the crowd of people around, watch out. Beware, take care, and be on your guard against all covetousness, the scarcity mentality, greed, and, 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 and this whole idea of materialism. Because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now Jesus goes on to share with the crowd a parable, a story. And this is what he said. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. He had great, great um, yield, if you would, uh, on his investment. And he thought to himself, you know, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And then he said, oh, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul? You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. You know, retire. Eat. Enjoy the finer things of life. And just be happy. After all, you've earned it, right? You know what he just described? The American dream. It really is. The American dream is simply this. It is to work hard all my life and to lay away enough, enough of a nest egg so that when I retire, I can live on the same standard of living except I don't have to work anymore. Isn't that it? 
Isn't that it? That's really the basis of everything. That's what we do everything for. That's why we plus up our IRAs and have our nest eggs and do all this investing because we hope to get to that place in our life where I don't have to work anymore. I can now have all my time to myself and I can do what I want on the same basic lifestyle. True? This is the American dream. And this guy's living it. However, the story's not over with yet. Because Jesus, or a God, goes on to say this. You... What's the word? The word fool has the idea to be spiritually and morally irresponsible. To be spiritually and morally irresponsible. And then he not only um, rebukes him, he then condemns him. This very night, your soul is going to be required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose then will they be? I think it's important to note here that the issue in the parable is not wealth. That's not the issue. The issue in the parable is about how one views and directs their wealth. Jesus warns against the sin of accumulating wealth for oneself. Notice the man in the story. He considered his property in its production his. You can tell by the use of the pronoun. What shall I do? For I have store my crops. Uh, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will store my grain, my goods, my soul, you. Everything about his life was, it's about me. I'm doing a good job. I've earned this. This is amazing. And most people in our culture would say, you did it. You've achieved the American dream. His focus was on his own comfort and security, and his perspective was entirely self-centered and self-indulgent, ignoring the needs of others. Jesus closes with this statement. So is the one, a fool, somebody who is spiritually and morally um, irresponsible, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. Jesus is saying this, that wealth directed towards oneself evidences a poverty of soul before God. There, there, dear, don't be foolish. Keep your money. Wow. I wish I was smart and as prosperous as you. You're obviously a very wise man and a good steward of God's resources. And yet, you are so wise. And you're a fool. See my challenge? We have so bought into the American dream, this cultural lifestyle, and, 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 and even our own, our own desires for covetousness, our, our, our uh, sinful nature, we've so bought into this, how do I even talk to you about being generous? Because this is what it looks like. This is what it really means. Now, now, now let, me, let me just explain the real difference between these two people, please. Because the difference is the difference. 
The difference is the difference. You can quote me on that, okay? Okay, you can put that up. Bill said the difference is the difference. All right, yes. What is the difference between these two people? It is in what they truly loved. Don't miss that. Therein is the difference, and that's what makes the difference. The elderly widow genuinely loved God, and it was evidenced in a generosity that seemed absolutely irrational. And the wealthy farmer genuinely loved himself because his focus was on making himself as comfortable as, as possible, and so by doing, he evidenced his poverty of soul before God. This is the difference. This is the challenge. This is my challenge. Friends, these two little stories actually tap into a deeper heartbeat that goes on here in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to look at it. But it's actually a heartbeat that is found everywhere in the New Testament. And it is a heartbeat that is what is true about our hearts. So I'm going to give you a statement that is actually found, that can be found in, in truth in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, First uh, and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, you know, you know, you know. Whether it is Matthew talking about this, Luke talking about this, John talking about this, Paul talking about this, Peter talking about this, or James talking about this, or Jude talking about this. It is consistent, and this is it. A true experience of God's grace, the unmerited favor of God found in the person of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. The true experience of God's grace fundamentally changes our hearts, giving us a new heart. Not Bob Newhart, but a Newhart. Okay, three of you got that. And it is evidenced in how we view and handle money and possessions. This is the basic understanding within the New Testament culture. Those who truly have conversion and the filling of the Holy Spirit as a supernatural experience will go on to produce supernatural responses. And that supernatural response is seen in how we handle the very things that hold us so tightly. Money and possessions, money and possessions, money and possessions. Greed and envy, greed and envy. If there is a new heart, the evidence of that new heart is the breaking of greed and the breaking of envy and making us generous and looking to be irrationally generous in the eyes of the culture in which we live. I just want to say that I'm not talking simply about obedience here to the tithe. I'm not, when I talk about generous, I'm not simply talking about obedience to the tithe. The Pharisees kept the tithe. The Pharisees tithed on everything. So it's not just about keeping the tithe. It is fundamentally soul-exploding bigger than that. It is about a radical transformation of our hearts whereby we now view our possessions not as our own but belonging to the Lord and we're quick and generous in giving them up. I tell you, you're looking at me like really frightened right now. Because right now your scarcity mindset is just going bizarre. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's he talking about? What's he saying? What's he saying? And our cultural heartbeat is going. 
oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? And we're frightened. A scarcity mindset is a fear mindset. Right now you feel threatened. Don't be threatened. If God is your father and Jesus is your benevolent king, what do you got to be afraid of? But we buy in. That there's only so much and I got mine and stay away from it. That mentality cannot persist and have us be a light in this culture. Listen, we cannot be 1% brighter than our neighbors and expect them to say, oh my gosh, look at over there. We can't even be 2% brighter than our neighbors and say, oh wow, look how generous they are. They're 2% more generous than I am. Something's obviously alive in their soul. No, we can't even be 10%. I'm talking tithe. We can't even be 10%. That was just an exception. That was understood. There was not even a mention of it. It was simply what was. People gave 10%. It was what it was. You know, somehow giving 10% is like, wow, they're obviously God followers because they give 10%. No. It is a radical transformation of our hearts that changes how we perceive these things. And people see that, and they say, that's not normal. No, it's abnormal. Hallelujah. That's not natural. No, it's supernatural. Hallelujah. I'm going to quickly run us through Luke together. Because there is a stream of thinking that's found in the gospel of Luke that will show us how we can be this beacon of light in a culture that is so worried about having its own. That's going to make us so generous that people are going to say, oh my gosh, who are these people? Jesus' people. Very, very different people. So, right now, many of you just want to check out. Many of you just want to leave. Some of you are very threatened. You just want to get up and walk out. You would do that if everybody wouldn't look at you and say, oh, look, at there they go. Hang on to your seats. Here we go. I'm going to show you through the Gospel of Luke exactly the kind of people that God expected his people to be and the power behind it all. So, Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 3. Boy, he's starting to chapter 3. This is going to take forever. No, it won't. Trust me. Luke chapter 3. What we have is the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. He is preparing the way for Jesus by preaching repentance, which is turning from our lifestyles and embracing Christ. And so he says this in verse 3 of Luke chapter, or verse 8 of Luke chapter 3. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And the crowd said, well, what does that mean to us? And he answered them and he said, well, listen, whoever has two tunics is to share one with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Well, there were some tax collectors standing there, and they wanted to get baptized in this repentance. And they said, well, teacher, what does that mean for us, this, this whole idea of bearing fruits in keeping with repentance? And he said to them, I want you to collect no more than you're authorized to do. And then there were some soldiers. I mean, these are Roman soldiers. And they were there because they were very drawn to this, this thing that John the Baptist was doing. And they also asked him, you know... What do we do when it comes to bearing fruits that are keeping with repentance? And he said to them, I don't want you to extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. I want you to be content with your wages. Now, the funny thing in this whole scenario is no one ever asked him about money and possessions, did they? 
That wasn't their question. Their question was, what does it mean to have fruits that keep with repentance? They wanted to know what a spiritual transformation looked like. And so, John the Baptist, being the forerunner of Jesus, being the one who was conditioning them to meet Jesus, basically said this, these things, money and possessions, are so close to the heart of what it means to know and follow God, John couldn't simply talk about spiritual things without speaking in terms of how to handle your money and possessions. So right off at the very beginning, John the Baptist is preaching repentance. He's preparing people for Jesus, and it begins with, you've got to repent. What does that even mean? Your life's going to change, and it's going to be evidenced by how you handle money and possessions. Square one. Okay, let's keep moving. So that's Luke chapter 3, and uh, the story of John the Baptist, who's preaching repentance. Um, a little further along in the, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we have another scenario. It's around this guy called the rich fool. We already talked about him. We don't have to go back there, do we? Or do we have to go back there? Y'all want to go back to that lesson? I think we learned it. Okay, well, maybe we haven't. But Okay, so the rich fool. Uh, so, but beyond that, there's another famous story. And it deals with this whole concept of salvation and money and possessions. And it's actually the story found in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. It is called the story of the rich young ruler. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> and a ruler, we know he was rich and young because of the other uh, tellings of it in the other Gospels. A ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, listen, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow. I want eternal life. Jesus says, I am eternal life. But there's something that stands between you and me, and it is your money. You love your stuff. And so long as you love your stuff, you can't have me, and thus you cannot know eternal life. So Jesus challenges him to deal with the idol in his life, which was his materialism, his wealth, his position. And sadly, just like the rich fool, he loved his life more than he found love in Christ. And so he walked away very sad, for he was extremely rich. And now Jesus continues with a little thought. Seeing that he had become sad, Jesus said this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And now we want to say, well, the eye of the needle must be that gate outside of Jerusalem. You know, the camels have to get down all the force. It's kind of a little gate, and the camels kind of unch in, and the camels get through. Yeah, so some people can get through every once in a while. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying. It's talking about a needle and a camel. Can you get a camel through a needle? The answer is, in fact, he said, what is impossible with man? It is impossible to get a camel through the needle. And what are you saying? It is impossible for a rich man to get saved apart from the miracle of God that captures his soul. This is what Jesus is saying about the rich young ruler who walked away sad because he had great, great wealth. 
We're running this stream of consciousness that goes through the book of Luke. We're talking about these truths. Jesus said in Matthew 6, these words, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other, or he'll be devoted to one, or he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Choose. But you can't have both. That's what he was doing with this guy. Make your choice. Me or money. And he chose his money. So, they were all listening, his disciples. Oh, wait a minute. Then who can be even saved? What is impossible with man is only possible with God. It takes a miracle to save a soul. Whether it be a poor one or a wealthy one, it takes a miracle to save a soul. Let me go back here and say, you know, um, we're looking at this dude and we're thinking, I'm glad it said that he was extremely rich because <laughs> that doesn't mean me, right? That's kind of how we all think. You know, okay, that, that dude had all those barns and all that crop and he was, a, he was a rich guy. I ain't rich. And here's this guy, he's extremely rich. I ain't extremely rich. So this is obviously not speaking into my world. Well, actually, maybe it is. Uh, you saw, I, I peeked. Uh, Randy Alcorn in his book, The Law of Rewards, says this. Uh, the rich young ruler and many other Bible characters show that, they, that the handling of our money is really the litmus test, of our, litmus test of our true character. It is the index of our spiritual life. Our stewardship of money and possessions becomes the story of our lives. If it is true of all people in all ages, what he said before, doesn't it have a special application to us who live in a time and a place of unparalleled affluence? who live in a country where the poverty level exceeds the average standard of living in nearly every other society in human history, past or present? He concludes with these words. If you have sufficient food, decent clothing, live in a place that shields you from the weather and have some kind of reliable transportation, congratulations, you're in the top 15% of the world's most wealthy. You feel pretty good right now, don't you? Had no idea. Had no idea. I am rich. And dear ones, living here, we are rich. If you were to simply add some savings, two cars, any condition, that's, what, that's his own words, and your own house, you have now reached the top 5% of the richest people in the world. Now, you may not feel wealthy, but that's only because you are comparing yourself with the mega wealthy. So what he is saying is this. This story is about us. And apart from a miracle of God that radically transforms our hearts, which is evidenced in how we handle our money and possessions, we cannot be saved. That's what he's saying. Remember, a true experience of God's grace fundamentally changes our hearts and it's evidenced in how we view and handle money and possessions. Now, I'm going to close with a story. And it is a story of a miracle. It is a story of the miracle of the transformation of a rich man's heart. 
And it is the story of Zacchaeus. How many have ever heard of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Uh, the Savior came along that way and looked up in the tree. Yeah, whatever. He said, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to stay in your house today. I blew that all up. That's okay. Don't worry about how the song goes. <clears throat> but the story of Zacchaeus is on the heels of the story we just looked at of the rich young ruler. And he's now showing them how salvation, true salvation, comes into the life of rich people. Here we go. It says, and Jesus entered Jericho. Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. He had just told his disciples in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, these words. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that has been written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after they flog him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. He's going to die for us. But along the way, he had a very important appointment to keep. Why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And the man he was coming to seek was a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Somebody who has been eternally elected and personally selected. The Savior was seeking him. But I, I actually think that to some degree he was now seeking the Savior. Because just prior to Luke chapter 19 is Luke chapter 18. And Jesus told this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee was standing by himself and he prayed thus, God, thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes. See, it's not enough to be 10% of all that I get. But this tax collector stood afar off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think he told that story because there was a tax collector who was looking to be right with God, waiting for an appointment to meet the Savior. Jesus was on a mission to meet a particular man in Jericho. It says, and he passed through. But wait a minute. I thought he had a person to meet in Jericho. Why would Jesus pass through? Because Zacchaeus had gone to the outskirts of the town to get ahead of the crowd so he could see Jesus. Jesus knew where he was. He actually went through Jericho to pursue this man because he knew who he was going to welcome. And so it goes on to say, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. His name means pure or righteous one. Apparently his parents had great hope for their son. Sadly, he turned out to be a real scoundrel because he was a chief tax collector and he was very, what's the word? He was rich. You know, saying that he was a chief tax collector is like saying he's the regional crime boss for the mafia. Really, really, this is who he was. He was a Jewish boy who had sold out to the Romans and was now working for and with the hostile occupying force in Israel. Tax collectors would buy regions from the Romans in which to collect tax money. The Romans would assign a certain amount of money to be collected, and whatever the tax collectors could make over and above that was theirs. And so this guy, Zacchaeus, would squeeze the people for Rome, and then he would squeeze them even harder for himself, and we know that he was rich. This guy was a scoundrel. This guy was a nasty dude. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. 
there's more going on here that's even apparent or discernible to Zacchaeus. Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the Father who draws, unless the Father who sent me draws them. And there is something going on in Zacchaeus' life that is indescribable. Because it says this, on account of the crowd, he, he could not see Jesus because he was very small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Listen, in Eastern culture, men don't run, especially wealthy men. You just don't do that. It's considered undignified. There's no way this guy would simply get up and run. And yet, almost childlike, he runs down the street and climbs a tree. This is unprecedented. No, people don't do that unless, unless, as Jesus said, over in Luke chapter 18 and verse 17, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. There's something going on in this guy's heart. There's something transforming him. He's looking for the Savior. He feels this need. He's almost being childlike. What keeps most rich people from, from Christ is pride and greed. And this guy had cast off his pride and was about to cast off his greed. He was going to show what it means to encounter the Savior. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. The Savior is seeking a sinner, and he had an appointment to keep. What Jesus was saying is this, Zacchaeus, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you, eat with you, and you will be with me. Revelation 3.20. So he hurried down, and he received him joyfully. My friends, this is the moment of salvation in his life. This is the moment of justification, where he opened the door of his house, and he opened the door of his heart to receive Jesus Christ. It says this, and when the crowd saw it, they grumbled. You know, listen, Jesus has gone to be the guest of a man like this sinner, you know, the local crime boss. And Zacchaeus stood, and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. That's a key word. The word Lord means master, one who has full control of something. He was now a new master to Zacchaeus. And Jesus not only replaced Rome in his life, more importantly, he, uh, Jesus replaced the idol of money in his life. Zacchaeus had found in Jesus what he'd been looking for in money, security, satisfaction, and significance. So he turned to Jesus and he said, and before the whole crowd, half of my goods I give to the poor. Not just his money, his goods. What a fantastic benevolence check you're all going to write next week, right? Half. I just want half, that's all. You can keep the other half. And quite frankly, most of us can live just fine on half. He's not done. He goes on to basically say this. He says, and if I have defrauded anyone, actually the use of the conditional clause here means since I have defrauded individuals, I will restore to them fourfold, which under the Mosaic law was an admission of theft. And he was willing to make restoration at the high end of the requirements of the law. What I want you to see in Zacchaeus' life is there is a fundamental change of heart that has happened. He has gone from being a selfish, greedy, money-focused man, covetous with a scarcity mindset, to a generous, Christ-pleasing, other-focused child of God. In fact, Jesus saw it because he said what? Bingo! How did Jesus know he was saved? Well, he's Jesus, I know. 
but he evidenced the transformation of life that's evident in one who has truly experienced the grace of God. Money was no longer his focus. How is it possible to be a generous people in a greedy, envious society? Friends, I don't know of a way other than to have a true experience of the grace of God that breaks the back of covetousness in your heart and in your life. Because apart from that, it isn't going to happen. Streaming forward in Luke, we're done. Luke 19, a true experience of God's grace fundamentally changes our hearts and is evidenced by how we view and handle our money and possessions. And we already looked at the widow. Uh, beautiful story. But um, I'd like you to now consider Luke chapter 26, verses 41 through 47. Some of you are sitting there thinking, chapter 26? It's also known as Acts chapter 2. Same man wrote both books, but the stream continues. And those who received the word, this is the day of Pentecost, and those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 people. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came on every soul, and many wonders and signs had been done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were actively selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to all who had need. And, and that day... Day by day, they attended the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, receiving food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to the number every single day those who were being saved. This is the first church. It was radical because Luke shows us the preparation of the heart and an understanding to embrace Christ breaks the backbone of greed and envy and makes us generous to the point where we will actively meet needs as they come our way. We don't have a hope of changing this community until this becomes a reality in our lives and collectively in our church. Would to God, would to God that I either drive you away with this preaching or the Spirit of God fall on us and bring revival. This is what we need. Not just to give $10 more in the offering plate, to, to you know, put $5 in the benevolence fund. I'm generous. No, you're not. You're not generous until the backbone of covetousness in your life has been snapped by the grace and power of God. Then you understand what generosity really looks like. Gosh, he's long-winded Let's pray. Father, these words are point blank. We would have to be a concrete wall not to understand what you're saying. But I pray, Father, that these words would fall on willing hearts and that maybe we would even go home from this time and sit down with our loved ones and honestly assess, what are we doing with our lives? What are we doing with your money? Are we merely hoarding it like our culture teaches us? Or are we seeing it as a means of the advancement of the kingdom of God? Oh God, continue to break my heart. 
this taproot of selfishness runs so deep. Break it. Rip it out by the roots. Help me to live as one who has met the glorious one. Take away any fear that I have and replace it with who you are. In the name of Christ. Amen. Now, do it. God bless you.